Psalm 33. Uh, so we're continuing our series on theology for life. We're taking different of uh, the basic Christian doctrines and explaining them and then seeing how they apply to the way that we live as Christians. A lot of believers have divorced the study of God with a life lived for God. In fact, even in Christian bookstores, and I have nothing against Christian bookstores, we need more of them. But there's usually two categories, one category of systematic theology, and then uh, on different shelves they have Christian living. And while we need to be in, in both of those books, when we look to Scripture, we find out who God is, we study what he's revealed about himself and his church and his world and the Scriptures, we discover that all of those things have implications for how you and I live, how we treat our spouse, our children, our friends, other Christians, even people outside of the church, how we engage unbelievers. All Christian theology informs all of Christian living. So tonight we come to creation. Creation. The doctrine of creation, how God did it, and why it matters. So, Psalm 33, let's look at verses 6 through 9. Don't miss the awe and the majesty of the vision that the psalmist gives us in these lines. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. So, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. The doctrine of creation, just in these few verses, give us a vision of God that is so big that all the plans of those who oppose him amount to nothing. How can David say, when you think of Israel before David's um, rise to to, to power before Solomon's ascendance, but before Israel becomes as powerful as it would, how can David talk about the heathen? That is, these other powerful pagan nations and tribes. How in the world can the, the psalmist say that all of the counsels of these kings comes to nothing? Because of verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. If this God spoke everything into existence, then all of the ideas and all of the devices and the plans and the intents of those who oppose him will in the end come to nothing. That's the vision of God we get with a biblical doctrine of creation. So Lord, help us as we look to your word tonight. May it feed us as you, its author, are the bread of life. 
May it sustain us and quench our thirst as you, its author, are the water of life. And may we go from here not just believing it, but obeying it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our whole reality, ourselves, our world, this physical universe, the clothes you wear, the house you own, the car you drive, the people you interact with every day. Everything in your world comes from one source, God's mind. God's mind. So this radical verse, Genesis 1-1, where our story begins, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. A radical statement then in a world, especially with the Israelites coming out of Egypt, where physical material things spawned out of chaos and angry deities warring with each other. Moses makes this crazy statement in their world, this radical statement that says all the heaven and the earth goes back to one being who didn't make it in chaos or anger or in war, but he made it because he decided to. He wanted to. So what is the doctrine of creation? I love this definition um, from the Westminster Confession. I think it's on the screen. It is. Good. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. By the way, it pleased God, which is so true. That's what we discover in the Bible, that God wanted to do this. God didn't need to make us in our world because God, Father, Son, and Spirit, wasn't lonely. Unlike the Jewish ideas of God or the Muslim ideas of God, our God was not alone until he had us. He always had Father, Son, and Spirit. So God didn't need to make us. He wanted to make us. He wanted to make us. So really two questions that I'm going to ask tonight. How did God create? And number two, how does this doctrine make a difference? So in other words, how did God create, number one? And then number two, why does it matter? So first of all, let's answer that first question. How did God create? We're going to answer this in two ways. Number one, God created the universe out of nothing. He created the universe out of nothing. This jumps out at us from Psalm 33. By his word, by his speaking, the heavens even are made. Unlike us, God doesn't start with something and change it around and rearrange it to make something else. That's how we make things. He started with nothing and made everything. Out of nothing, or ex nihilo, that's the idea, that, that God starts with nothing and made this world. John 1, 3, all things were made by him. What do you mean by all things, John? And without him was not anything made that was made. All of this world was created by God. Some of you are good at making stuff. Some of us aren't good at making stuff. Some of us are so bad at making things that we, we, we 
take it out of the box, we don't follow the directions, or we try our best to follow the directions, we build it wrong, we damage it so that it's irreparable, and we throw it away in our neighbor's dumpster and go back to Walmart and get another one before our wife finds out. Right? Or it's it's not just me. Some of you are more creative than I am. Although my wife gives me a hard time because for some reason I can build Legos. I can't build anything useful around the house, but I can do Legos okay. I don't know why that is. I really don't. Some of us are good at making stuff. Some of us aren't. But even the most creative among us start with things, right? The best artists in here start with a a canvas. And you didn't speak that canvas into existence. You went and bought it at the store, No, we take things and we rearrange them. Our our creativity has limits. And in this way, we are so very different from God. C.S. Lewis in his letters uh, writes this, we, even our poets and musicians and inventors, never in the ultimate sense make things. We only build. We always have materials to build from. Even at our most creative, we don't make things like God makes things because God makes things out of nothing, and this universe came out of nothing. Number two, so number one, God created this universe out of nothing. Number two, God created mankind in a distinct personal way. Now, we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks uh, when we return to our series. Uh, We're going to talk about what it means for God to make us in his image. We're going to have a whole lesson on that. Uh, because the doctrine is deep, and there's so much application that flows out of knowing and really believing that I'm made in the image of God and that other people are made in the image of God. So that's going to be a whole sermon on its own. But we can at least notice tonight that God created mankind in a distinct personal way. That is, mankind is set apart from the rest of creation. Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27 Genesis 1, 26, 27, um, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created He them. Chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The way God created us, as told in the Genesis story, is so unique compared to how he created the other things. When God creates sea life, he talks to the waters, as it were, and he says, Let the sea bring forth abundantly. In other words, let the waters yield these sea creatures. When God wants to create land animals, he he tells the earth to bring forth every living creature. So he talks to the waters, he talks to the earth, but something different happens with man. Man is not created like these other things indirectly. But instead, man is a direct creation of God. It's not let the waters or let the land, but he says, let us. Let us. God, in other words, did not set the universe in such a way that we would begin to exist. God decided to create us directly. We are his own canvas, 
his own special work of art in a way that the snail is not. He doesn't say, let the earth, but let the water, but let us. And then notice chapter 2, verse 7. All the verbs in verse 7 of chapter 2, underline these verbs. He forms, he breathes, he made. Moses is emphasizing the care and attention and time that God takes in creating us in such a way that he didn't with other forms of, with other lower forms of life. So God created everything out of nothing. And then number two, he created us in a distinct personal way. That's question one. Now I want to spend the rest of our time talking through question two. That's how God created, but why does creation matter? Many Christians are familiar with the doctrine of creation, the basic facts of creation. We know God is the maker of heaven and earth. We know God made the world and everything in it. We, we get it. Christians don't typically buck against that. In fact, you may be wondering, from what I have said so far, if you've been raised in the church, if you're familiar with Christianity, you may be wondering so far why we are wasting a sermon on such a basic issue. After all, David, I learned this from a flannel graph. Like, right? If you grew up in a Baptist church, you learned about the six days of creation on a flannel graph before you were even potty trained. You knew all the six days and, and what things were made on the different days. I mean, we, we've got this down, right? Christians, if you look at social media, Christians talk about creation all the time. It's typically the when of creation, not the how and the why. I think it's because when we get into the why, it's a little more challenging for us spiritually, but it's easy to talk online about the when and not be challenged in how you live your life. So a lot of Christians spend a lot of time doing that. But why does creation matter? Like, how does this affect me as a Christian? If the doctrine of, of creation was taken out of the creeds, was taken out of our church's statement of faith, was taken out of the Christian consciousness, how would I live differently? Would I live differently? Would you live differently? There's the, the child who asked his father after he heard a, a message. He asked his father who was preaching, so what? We may ask the same question of the doctrine of creation. What is the so what of creation? Or is there one at all? Well, I think there is a so what of this theology. And I want to talk about five different things. Five reasons that the doctrine of creation matters in your life. Still with me? All right, number one. The doctrine of creation means that God is the ultimate owner of everything. God is the ultimate owner of everything. Romans 11:36 For of him and through him and to him are all things. You see believing in creation is much more than having a certain perspective on the origin of the world. Now that's part of the package, right? We believe in an origin of this world and we, we believe it was personal and that it wasn't accidental. We believe God wanted this world to be. So believing in creation does mean that, but it means this, that, that at the end of the day, we don't own anything. Ultimately, we don't own anything. 
ultimately. Paul starts the church at Corinth, but who is this? Uh, he, he doesn't see himself as the owner. He calls himself a, a steward, right? That's how he looks at church leaders. But, and this is really the case with everything in our lives that we are tempted to think that we have ultimate ownership of. Things that we think that we have the rights to. If creation is true, then this world is not full of objects and people that we can lay claim to if we use our power. No, if the doctrine of creation is true, all the objects and all the people in my life are owned by God. And I should treat them as such. Think about this. How would your marriage be different? How would your marriage be different if you stopped acting like your spouse was an object that belonged to you? Would it be different? Would it be quite a bit different, maybe? What, what problems are in your marriage right now or in other relationships? What problems are coming from you acting like you own another person? See, if we view people as if we own them, we will flip out when they don't do what we want them to do, right? Because they're ours. They belong to us. They, they, we can demand that they, they follow all our expectations, that they meet all of the demands that we have conjured up in our hearts because they belong to us. But what if your spouse doesn't belong to you? What if your marriage doesn't belong to you? What, about, what, what if your marriage is actually something that God owns? It's a God thing and you have to treat it like it's God's and not yours. Would that change how you treat your spouse? Would it? If creation is true, it means your children don't ultimately belong to you. You parent them, you love them, you hopefully evangelize and disciple them, but you don't own them. Did you know that they don't exist to make you happy? They don't exist to meet your needs. Or to give you a chance to change things about your own childhood that you're dissatisfied with. Because they're not yours. God made them. God owns them. You get to steward them, and hopefully you're doing that really well, but they don't belong to you. They don't exist for you. If of him and through him and to him are all things, that would include your kids. Would you treat your church differently if you stopped acting like you owned your church? Or the people in it that you can't control? Now we understand the lead pastor doesn't own the church, the staff doesn't own the church, members don't own the church. It's not because there's some special board somewhere that does. It's not because the trustees own it or because the deacons own it. It's because it's the Lord's. Not only because we're all created by God, but we are a company of people who have been redeemed by God. He's purchased us. He, he owns us. This church isn't yours. That means sometimes there'll be things in the church that you don't exactly like. But that's okay. Listen, this is really freeing. It's okay because it doesn't belong to you. So not everything has to be done exactly how 
you like it. There are, there are desires that you have that the church might not, might not meet, and that's okay. And there will be people in the church that, that you may not get along with because they're not exactly like you, and that's okay. You don't own them. This is God's. We just get to have a part in it. We get to serve the church. We don't need to try to control it because it doesn't belong to you. Did you know that you don't even own yourself? What, Paul says? What? What, Corinthians? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And you are not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you are, you are God's and not your own doubly? Because number one, he created you. You didn't create yourself. Your existence is not dependent on anything that you have done. God made you out of an act of love. He made you. But not only did he make you, then when you trusted in the Lord Jesus, when you started repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ to save you, we call that being saved. Then God started owning you doubly because he gave you the Holy Spirit that resides with you. You belong to God. You don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. That, that means you don't have to live based off of you, all of your desires and impulses. You don't have to follow all your temptations thinking, well, I know what makes me happy. No, actually you don't. Your owner knows what makes you happy. God knows what makes you happy. And following temptation will never do that. Your owner, your owner, your owner knows, not you. Do you act as if you are your own creator when you give into temptation? Do you really think that you and I know how to live our lives better than God knows how we ought to live our lives? No. Now, people talk a lot about ownership today, and it's usually a good thing because what they mean by ownership and a lot of the self-help material, I think, could just be responsibility, right? So when people say you need to take ownership of your job, take ownership in your family, take ownership in your discipline, eating habits, exercise habits, I think what they're saying is you need to take responsibility, and that's a good thing. But our meaning in life will never be found ultimately in ownership, but actually in relinquishing ownership. You know how you get a Romans 12 church? Romans 12, 1 and 2. There's a lot of cool things that that Christians do for each other in Romans 12. But it starts with verses 1 and 2, where we give up ourselves as a living sacrifice. See, when you live your Christian life as a life of relinquishing ownership, instead of taking ownership, taking control of yourself and other people, when you give up your ownership back to God in light of all of his mercy, which, by the way, if you want to know what's the mercy of God, go read Romans 1 to 11. That's the mercy of God. That's a great motivator for why you should live as a living sacrifice. And we relinquish ownership. We don't take it. Creation means God is the ultimate owner of everything, not me. Number two, because this world is God's, we can trust his providence in all things. Did you know that because God owns everything, he reigns over everything he owns? Oh, this is so cool. Look at Psalm 103.19. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. God just didn't make the heavens. He's got a throne. In other words, he has authority. He has jurisdiction that doesn't have an edge to it. There's no limit to it. There's no outside. There's no fence that his jurisdiction runs up against. It's all his. So his providence doesn't have any limits either. 
I know we think we believe it, but do we really believe that? How different would our lives be if we lived like God either does or often allows everything that happens in our lives? I think if we read the Bible, we find God does not decree everything. He doesn't do everything. I think that's pretty clear. But whatever he doesn't do, he does allow. Nothing happens without him knowing about it. Nothing happens without him allowing it. Nothing passes him by where God thinks, oh, I shouldn't have let that happen. What did I do? He doesn't fall asleep on the job. No. God runs the world that he made. What does this mean, David? It means that, Christian, you should trust his providence. You should trust his care for you. He knew that loss you're facing this week. He knew that was coming. He knew that was coming. The difficulty you have at your job this month, he knew that was coming. And he allowed it. Does that mean God's only going to allow what I can handle? No. No. Of course. God allows a lot of things into our life that we can't handle. But if you're a Christian, whatever God allows in your life, he will help you handle. The truth is, going back to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, God allows many things in our lives that you and I can't handle. They're way above our pay grade. But God's not going to allow anything in your life that he can't handle with you. With you. Do we trust his providence? Do we, when we run up against the difficulties of life, do we do so remembering that God is the creator and the one who providentially oversees our lives? Or do we act like he is a lesser God whenever times get tough? Here's some questions to ask in a trial. If everything that happens in our lives is either done by God or allowed by God, that means that God has a reason for allowing things to happen. We may not always, by the way, understand that reason in this life. There are many things we may not understand until the next life or we may never understand. God, after all, has an infinite mind, right? And we don't, and we never will. I'm okay with that. But when you run up against trials, think about it. You, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you don't believe that this universe is ran by random forces of chance. You don't believe it's chaos all the way down. If you're a Christian, you believe there is a God overseeing this world and all the people in it. And guess what? You're one of the people in it. So when you run up against a trial, here's some questions to ask. If God is allowing me to go through this, number one, what can this trial teach me about God? What can this trial teach me about God? There are some things about the Lord and his grace that we only learn in suffering. We only learn in suffering. It is impossible to fully know what it's like for our high priest to understand everything we go through if we're not going through anything tough. There are some things that God may want to teach about you in the next two or three years that you've not been ready for up until now. But he can't teach you those things unless he lets you go through something really, really difficult. There are some attributes of God that you and I will not understand. We won't understand unless he allows us to go through things that we think there is absolutely no reason for. That's just the way it is. 
Man, how do you think Hosea felt about his marriage? Right? Like, if we could time travel and bring somebody from the Bible back to do a marriage conference, it would not be Hosea. It's like, don't book that guy. His marriage sucked. And he knew it was going to be terrible, right? What, what do we learn by reading the prophet Hosea? There were things that Hosea learned about God and his faithfulness to Israel, who was unfaithful. Hosea learned those things about God and was able to teach Israel and teach us about God only because he went through a marriage like that. Isn't that amazing? There are things in your life that when you're going through them, you'll think, there's no way there's a good reason for this. Hold on, hold on. God's omniscient. Isn't it possible God knows some reasons for a trial you're going through that your mind just isn't infinite enough to grasp? In other words, if you're a Christian, shouldn't you believe God knows things that you don't know? No, ask number one, what can I learn about God in this trial? Number two, when you're going through a trial... Ask, how is God sanctifying me? How is God going to make me more like Jesus as I go through this trial? Number three, ask about empathy. When God allows providentially something in my life, if he's the creator, he's the overseer of this world, if he's going to providentially allow this in my life, is he, is he allowing me to have more empathy with other people who have experienced this? I don't know what it's like to lose a child. Brother Bill and Miss Katie do. And they're ministering right now all over the country because God allowed them to go through something that would create empathy in them for other people. That I, I can love those people, I can pray for those people, I can't have that same empathy as much as I want to be able to relate to people who have went through that because I've not experienced it. When you go through a trial, ask, is God using this to create empathy in me? And then number four, ask, is God providentially allowing this into my life so I can learn how to rely on him more? In other words, will I depend on God more as a result of going through this? I'm not saying that God in his providence will always give you an answer for why you're going through something. What I'm saying is he has an answer. He may not share that answer with you, but he has one. All right, number three. Uh, Number three, why does creation matter? God not only created the world, he sustains it. So pray. Pray. Jesus, it says, Hebrews 1.3 does this. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Isn't that amazing? God not only made this world, he keeps it going. He didn't wind the clock and walk away. He keeps it going. He keeps you going. He keeps you breathing. You're not just created by God. You're sustained by God. You know what that means? You didn't just need God to make this world and make you. You need God tomorrow. You need God to help you with that conversation you have tomorrow. He is our sustaining God. You need God to help you process that temptation tomorrow. No, we live in prayer because our God is not just the creator. He is the sustainer. We can't stay where we need to stay without him. We can't grow like we need to grow grow without him. We don't need God just to interfere in our lives once. We don't need God just to meet us once. We need God to be with us all of the time. And prayer is acknowledging that reality. When you pray, you're talking to God because you recognize you need him. And when you don't pray... Whenever you're not praying, 
It's just an evidence that you're forgetting that you need him. What you're saying is, I don't need the Lord as sustainer, even though I may need him as creator. Yes, he made me, he saved me, I'm good to go, I don't need to talk to God today. No, no, no. You need him every day, so live a life of prayer. Have an ongoing conversation with him. Number four, man, this is really good. Number four, here's what the doctrine of creation means. Creation means you are not an accident. You are not an accident. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Oh, this is amazing. What is man? God that you would care about us. Can I personalize this a little bit? Who am I that you would be mindful of me? Have you ever felt out of place in a room? When I was younger, I went with my older brother to chess club a few times. I don't know how to play chess, but they had Oreos. There's a snack table. I ate the Oreos. And when someone asked me, hey, do you want to play? I would say, ah, I'm playing with somebody else. I would lie, right? I hadn't done that series on the Ten Commandments yet, so it's okay. Um, I, I felt so out of place there because, I, I mean, I'm, I'm nerdy. If you know me at all, you know I'm super nerdy. There are people out there, believe it or not, that are more nerdy than I am. And if you want to know who they are, you need to go back in time to that library room where we had chess club and meet them. Those people were more nerdy than me. I did not feel in, in my place because it was a chess club and I didn't know how to play chess. I, I, I had wrong names for all the pieces on the board thing. I will, but you know, seriously though, some of you feel out of place in church. Some of you have gotten to the point where you're so wounded from all these different things that have happened to you, you feel out of place in this world. So you think about harming yourself? You don't eat like you're supposed to? You're starving yourself? You've had thoughts of taking your own life because you feel like you're a mistake. If you feel that way, I'm not belittling you. Maybe somebody told you you were a mistake. Maybe people have treated you like you were a mistake. But the message of Christianity for the person who feels like that is that God made you, and God doesn't make mistakes. You're not an accident. You're not out of place in this world. Now, you may have made mistakes. You may have made mistakes. That doesn't mean you are a mistake. God put you here because he wants you to be alive. And if you're here tonight, God wants you to be in this church. God is our creator. We didn't get here by accident. That means you are not an accident, whether you feel that way or not. So you may need to listen to yourself a little bit less and with God's truth, talk back to those feelings a little bit more. Creation means you're not an accident. Number five, and and then we're, we're finished. Creation means that your life and everything in it has purpose. Revelation 4, 11. Man, what a beautiful verse. Thou art worthy, O Lord, 
to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Man, this is such a great... Paul Tripp suggests that we ask this question. Uh, What an amazing question. What is God's purpose for my blank? Think about how you could use that question. What is God's purpose for my possessions? Like, what does he want me to do with the stuff that I've accumulated? What is God's purpose for my home? How does he want me to use this to minister to people? What is God's purpose for my money? What is God's purpose for my spouse? What is God's purpose for my singleness? If you don't have a spouse. What is God's purpose for this job? Why does he have me working where I'm working at this stage of my life? That's such a powerful question to ask, but it's a question you'll never ask if you forget the doctrine of creation because you'll treat these things as as if you can give them your own purpose. But you don't own this world and you don't own your stuff. You didn't make this. God made it. God has a purpose for you and everything in your life, and ultimately it ends up in this. He has you and he has the stuff that you have where it's at to bring him glory. See, creation in the end is all about glory. What what does glory mean anyway? When it comes to God, it means we're showing off to the world what he's like. (laughs) Glorifying God doesn't mean we make him a certain way. We can't make God anything. It means we take what's true about him and we put it on display at our work, in our home, in front of our friends, in front of people we don't even know that are observing and watching us. No, glorifying God means we take what's true about him and we put it on a big sign where everybody can see it. We do that by the way we live our lives. Are you living like you, you are your creator or are you living like God is your creator? The um, band is going to come and we're going to sing together. And uh, if you'd like to pray, you're welcome to do that as well. I'd just like you to maybe ask this question in your heart or ask this question to God. God, have I forgotten that you are my creator and that I belong to you? Let's pray. Would you bow with